All right, Romans chapter 6. Again, I will read verses 1 through 14. Our focus will be verses 12 through 14. So Paul writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were baptized with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we die with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." So just a little recap from last week. Again, we looked at verses 5 through 11 in this passage. As Paul gives us the command to, in verse 11, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that verb reckon there makes you sound like you're from the South, but it really just means to consider. It's an accounting term, which means to count yourself dead to sin, to consider yourself dead to sin, basically to believe and accept the truth that you have indeed died to sin. As Paul says in verse uh, 3, do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. So he wants us to know the truth, and then he wants us to reckon that it is true and accept it in our lives. So reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's how Paul finishes the section we covered last week. And leading up to that finish, Paul was building his case that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And this death to sin and, and, and being alive in Christ is mediated through or is facilitated by our union with Christ. As we have been united with him in his death, we will also be united with him in his life or in his resurrection. In fact, he spoke of our being united together with Christ in the likeness of his death. He spoke of the crucifixion of the old man. We were crucified. That old man has been put to death. That old man has been crucified with Christ. And that old man is not like an old man, like some of us are older gentlemen, (laughs) but it is the idea of the man who was in Adam. The man who was born in Adam, the one who is fleshly, the one who is of this age, that is the man who died on the cross with Christ. 
And he spoke of our freedom to sin now through our death to Christ. Because, we've been, because we were crucified with Christ, we are now freed from the power of sin. He spoke that not only have we died with Christ, we have also been made alive with Christ. So we not only share in his death, but we also share in his resurrection. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And then finally, he spoke about how the dominion of death has been broken in our lives through our union with Christ. That dominion of death, the reign of death that Paul spoke about in Romans 5, the reign of death that from Adam to Moses to us, you have death reigning because of Adam's disobedience. Death came into this world through sin and death now reigns because all men die. All people die. But he also spoke about how we are now, that dominion has been broken because we are united with Christ. Christ defeated death on the cross. When he, when he went to the cross, when he died and was raised from the dead, he defeated death. He conquered death. And because of our union with him, we too have defeated death. We have conquered death. So therefore, Paul finishes, we are then to consider ourselves, to reckon ourselves, to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord. But we also, last week, um, before we looked in those verses, we discussed the relationship, if you remember, we discussed the relationship between justification and sanctification. How these two are distinct Applications of the gospel, but they are united. They are inseparably united one to the other. A person who is justified in Christ will not fail to be sanctified in Christ. And we looked at how the, this relationship gets distorted, how in the Roman Catholic theology you get the, the kind of the confusion of the two. What we see as sanctification to the Roman Catholic mind, they see as justification. So they see this whole idea of their theology of doing penance, of being baptized, of doing good works, as you are building up in yourself righteousness so that when you appear before God, you, he will measure your righteousness and see whether you get to go into heaven or you have to go to purgatory and you still have a little bit of work left to do before you can go to heaven. Of course, the other way to, to confuse the two, the relationship between justification and sanctification, is to see them as completely separate and not united at all, not, dis, not, not joined together. So you can have a, a person who's justified but not sanctified, a person who has accepted Jesus as their Savior but hasn't made him Lord of, his, of their life yet. And we saw that those are two errors, two distortions on the relationship. Now, before we move on, I, I want to continue speaking about sanctification this morning. Sanctification and the gospel is kind of where I want to go next. So how does sanctification relate to the gospel? Now, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? If I were to ask anybody here, give me a short definition of the gospel, how would you respond? What's that? Okay, it's good news. Okay, so Christ died for your sins. You don't have to keep the law. Anything else? Is there something we need to do in there? Is there a call for us to do something? 
believe, accept. Okay, right. So Acts, again, Acts 16.31. Paul, he's in prison in Philippi. Uh, he was beaten. Him and Silas were beaten, thrown into prison. And there was a, the, the, an angel was freeing them. And there was a, you know, an earthquake and the prison doors opened and most of the prisoners left. Paul and Silas were still there. And the Philippian jailer is still there, and he's about to kill himself. And Paul says, don't kill yourself. We're still here. And then uh, the, the Philippian jailer says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says to him in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Very simple definition of the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Again, all of these things we talked about, good news. Um, you know, the forgiveness of sins, acceptance, all those things are included in that, in that summary there. Now, what is one verse that really just kind of summarizes the gospel as a whole? It's a very popular verse. John 3.16, very good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the summary of the gospel. Now, as great as these summaries of the gospel are, and we should trumpet these truths from the housetops to everybody, there's more. There's more to the gospel than simply just the act of believing in Jesus. Consider what Jesus himself says of the gospel from the gospel records. As he's beginning his ministry, as he is coming out after being baptized, after you know, John the Baptist has sort of heralded the coming of Christ, Jesus, you know, he, go, he gets baptized, you get the, you know, the, the heavens opening up, the voice of God speaking down, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and he goes out to get tempted when he... After his 40 days of temptation, he comes out and he begins to proclaim the gospel. And it says here in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, this is his gospel message now, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Similarly, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Or in Luke chapter 4, verses 43, where he says, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, because for this purpose I have been sent. So the gospel, to use Sue's definition, the good news of the gospel is that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, has come. It is at hand. It is breaking forth into this world. The kingdom of God is coming back to take what has been lost to evil, to Satan, to the kingdom of darkness, to the prince of the power of the air. The kingdom of God is here. That is the gospel message. And there's so much wrapped into that phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus, the son of God, he is the promised prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament, he has come into the world And he has come into the world to usher in the kingdom of God through the rule and the reign of Messiah. Now, there's a lot more that can be said about this concept of the kingdom of God as a very rich concept. But what I want to say for the moment is that the gospel is more than just 
come to Jesus and have your sins forgiven. It is that. Okay, I don't want to minimize that. It is that. But it is also so much more than that. We cannot reduce the fullness of the gospel um, to just one aspect of the gospel. The gospel is more than just forgiveness. It includes forgiveness, but it is more than just forgiveness. But what I will say is this. Salvation is the process of making us citizens fit for the kingdom of God. Now again, as we said, forgiveness of sins, that's one aspect of our salvation. And sin is a barrier. Sin is a barrier that keeps us from entering the kingdom of God. Again, if you think about how the Old Testament sacrificial system was set up, God was in their midst, but everything about God was veiled. Everything about God was sort of partitioned. It was separated. And it was separated not because God is, you know, I'm going to put all these weird little rules in place so that these people can't get to me. And if they forget to dot an I or cross a T, bam, I'm going to zap them and knock them dead. No, it was to protect the people from the holiness of God. The people were marred by sin. The people are corrupt. But the holy God wants to dwell in their presence. And the only way he can do that is through the sacrificial system, is through the veiling of, of the temple, all these things, the priests, all that elaborate detail is meant as a protection for the people so that they do not become consumed by the holiness of God. But sin, our sin problem, needs to be dealt with before we can become full citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, when we talk about salvation as a process, as I said earlier, salvation is the process of making us citizens fit for the kingdom of God. You can really kind of look at it in three main phases. You've got justification, you've got sanctification, and you've got glorification. Okay? Now, these are part of what is overall called the the order of salvation. There's many more aspects to it. There's our calling, there's our election, there's faith and repentance, there's adoption, all these things. But from our perspective, there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, if you think about justification, in justification, the penalty of sin is done away with. Okay, Jesus Christ dies and is raised for our justification. We saw that in Romans 4. He is raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. What Jesus Christ does is he pays the penalty for our sin. So that by our faith, by grace through faith, we receive that righteousness from God and our sin penalty has been paid. That's why Paul talks about salvation or he talks about justification as a propitiation. We looked at that word propitiation is not only a turning away of the wrath of God, but is also a a payment for the sin debt. The sin debt has been paid. So justification, the penalty of sin is done away with. We are declared righteous in God's sight. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. We are declared righteous by our faith in Christ. His righteousness is imputed to us. It is applied to us. So we are declared innocent, and the penalty of sin has been removed. Now, in sanctification, 
the power of sin is being done away with. So justification, the penalty of sin is done away with. In sanctification, the power of sin is done away with. Okay? You've got the Holy Spirit working in and through the Word. It helps us to subdue sin in our life. We looked at that last week when we looked at these definitions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Heidelberg Catechism. The definitions of sanctification where in, in sanctification, the Spirit enables us to subdue sin in our lives. The power of sin has been broken due to the death and resurrection of Christ and our union with him. That's what we're looking at now in Romans chapter 6. And then finally, in glorification, the presence of sin is done away with. So justification, the penalty of sin is done away with. Sanctification, the power of sin is done away with. In glorification, the presence of sin is done away with. In this life, We continually fight sin. We struggle with the temptations of sin in our lives. We have to daily take up our cross and follow Jesus. We have to daily struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have to daily battle sin in our lives because sin is still present in our lives. Because even though we have been renewed in our spirits, we still live in a body of flesh. We still live in a body that is of this age. The flesh of our bodies presents to the world and the devil sort of a beachhead to, uh, for sin to attack us. So if you think of a military, you know, think of World War II and the, the Normandy invasion. I'm going to use this illustration later, but think of World War II and the Normandy invasion. What did the, the victory at Normandy accomplish for the Allied powers? It gave them a foothold in Europe, Right. You know, that massive invasion in in Normandy on D-Day gave the Allied powers a foothold in Europe and allowed them then to launch out and attack the the, the Axis powers in France and then in Germany. I mean, many people say that on D-Day, the victory of D-Day was really the turning point of World War II. It was at that point, Germany was done. It was just the mopping up uh, process after that point. Well, our flesh is sort of like a beachhead for sin. It still allows sin to attack us, which is why we have to continually fight against it in our lives. But when the final resurrection comes at Christ's glorious return, that presence of sin is done away with as the last vestige of this current evil age, that is our bodies, are transformed into a glorious body like the body that Christ has. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how in the twinkling of an eye we will be transformed, those who are still alive in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about how those who are dead in Christ, they will be raised in their glorious bodies, and those of us who are alive will be caught up in the air to, to meet our Lord as he comes. We will be transformed. Philippians 3 talks about we will have a body like his glorious body. So then in a very real sense, you can say we have been saved, justification. We are being saved, sanctification. And we will be saved, glorification. So sanctification is just as much a part of the gospel as justification is. The kingdom of God is advancing as we put off the old man with its lusts and its desires and put on the new man which is being made like Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. 
Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 23, or sorry, 22 through 24, Paul tells them that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That is sanctification and the gospel. As we've been saying for the last three weeks, Paul here is shifting in his exposition of the gospel in Romans from justification. Now he's going to start talking about sanctification in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, in a sense. So as we look at Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, the rest of this section here, we're going to see this critical third key. We've been kind of looking at three keys of sanctification. The first one was knowing that you, have, that you have died to sin, that you are dead to sin. The second one was the reckoning, reckoning yourselves dead to sin. And now the third one is sort of talks about here in verses 12 and 13, where you present yourselves as instruments to God for holiness. So this idea of breaking the dominion of sin, that is our sanctification. That is the third key, breaking that dominion of sin. All right, so in verse 12, Paul here says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. Of course, there's our favorite word there, therefore. Therefore points us back to what Paul had just said in verses 5 through 11. So he says, because we have been united together in the likeness of his death, because our old man was crucified with him, because we have died with Christ, because we believe that we shall also live with Christ, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. We said this earlier, and we talked about this a few weeks back when we looked at Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Adam's disobedience unleashed a reign of death in the world on all humanity. Every person born into this world is born in Adam's sin. They have, he has his guilt. Every person has Adam's corruption. And then every person, because of that guilt and corruption, commits actual sins. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, death reigns. We are all subject to death. But, my favorite word, right? When I say but, you should just all think that's Carl's favorite word. The obedience of Christ broke that reign of death in humanity. So that all those who are in union with Christ are now dead to sin. We are dead to sin. That's kind of how sanctification, in a sense, works. You have to understand, it's like, I'm dead to sin. These things I struggle with, these things that tempt me. Now, each of us have a sin or maybe some sins that we struggle with in our lives. And each one struggles with something differently. My struggle with sin is going to be different than everyone else's struggle. I mean, we may have some, share some of the same struggles, but we all have our own little particular sins that we just, they just gnaw at us. They just kind of really, you know, we have to really fight. Other things, just no problem. Like for me, I mean, I have never, ever, ever been tempted to gamble. But I know there are people who do struggle with gambling. There are people who will go to the, to the, the racetrack or whatever, or they'll, lose all their money in casinos or whatever. These people really struggle to the point where 
you know, they get their paycheck and then they waste their paycheck on gambling or whatever. Okay. The point is, is that we all struggle with something and we have to say in our lives, we are dead to that. We have died to that sin. That is how sanctification works, at least part of it. So as a result of that truth, Paul gives us the command then to not let sin reign. In other words, that reign was broken with the resurrection of Christ. Don't let it back on the throne. It is dead. Don't let it out of the grave. The tyrant has been deposed. Don't let him back into power. And he says here, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And that word for mortal speaks of something that is liable to death. The bodies that we have are bodies that are subject or liable to death. And even before the fall, uh, Adam had a body that was liable to death. He had, a, he had a mortal fleshly body. It is a fleshly body. It is a natural body. It is a body made for this age, this physical, earthly age that we're in. And then what makes it even worse is that now, after the fall, it is not only a body made for this age, but it is now also a body that is subject to death. It is a body that will die. This body that is mortal is also susceptible to sin and temptation. So the old man that was crucified, Paul is telling us, don't let that old man back into the room. Don't let that old man out of the grave. Don't let that old man back onto the throne. Now the purpose for not letting sin reign again in your mortal body is that we should no longer obey its lust. So don't let sin reign in your life in order that you will obey its lusts. Even though sin is a vanquished foe, it can still entice us with its lusts. Again, like I said, I use the World War II illustration. I kind of shot my bullets there. But, you know, the World War II illustration, again, is, you know, D-Day was when the Allied forces effectively won the war, but the fighting went on for at least another year until V-Day. That was a year, about a year later. And that fighting was some of the most intense fighting of the war was when Germany was being backed into a corner was in, in danger of losing everything, the fighting became even more fierce. And that's kind of like what we have here. Our, in our union with Christ, in his death and resurrection, it doesn't remove sin from our lives, but it has broken its power. But we now have to fight because sin and Satan and everything, they are a vanquished foe. They know their time is limited. So it is some of the most fierce fighting in our lives is fighting against sin. I mean, think about it. The devil doesn't have to worry about someone who's not saved because someone who's not saved isn't trying to fight sin in their life. Okay? It is only the person who is saved that is trying to fight sin in their life. So that fight becomes much more severe, much more intense. Again, sanctification is doing away with the power of sin. When we get glorified, then the presence of sin is finally removed. Paul will say later in Romans in chapter 8 and verse 13... For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If you, as a Christian, if you live according to the ways of this world, if you live according to the lusts of your body, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, 
you will live. There's an interesting biblical analogy to all this in the story of the conquest of Canaan. Okay, so the conquest of Canaan. Uh, All throughout the Exodus period, God promised that he would be with Israel's armies and would drive out the Canaanite forces from the promised land as they were in the wilderness of Sinai. On their way to the promised land, God said, I'm going to drive out those, those inhabitants before you. They will sort of fall before you like you know, sheep for the slaughter. And as we get to the book of Joshua, we see the Israelites getting ready to carry out God's judgment on the Canaanites. Now we know the rest of the story. The Israelites were unable to drive out all of the inhabitants. They did not have, they didn't fight with, the, with faith. They didn't, in fact, they didn't even obey all of God's commands. God told them to wipe them out completely, and they didn't do that. They left some of the Canaanite uh, inhabitants there, and what we see then is the result of this was prophesied, and then it was fulfilled. In Numbers chapter 33 and verse 45, God says to them, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants from the land before you, Then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. So God said he's going to to be with their armies. He's going to help them drive out the inhabitants. But if you do not do that, if you let any people survive, there are going to be thorns in your side. There are going to be irritants in your eyes. And sure enough, in Judges chapter 2, verse 3, so Judges is after Joshua, after Joshua has died, and the, the, the Israelites are still there with some of the inhabitants in the land. In Judges 2, verse 3, God says, Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And that's what happens throughout the rest of Israel's time in the Promised Land until they get exiled. Is their failure to do what God had commanded them. These inhabitants became a snare to them. Now, that's an illustration for us. If you do not fight sin, if you do not fight in your life to eradicate sin in your life, that sin is going to be a snare to you. It's going to be an irritant in your eye. It's going to be a thorn in your side. So in verse 13, Paul tells them to present yourselves to God. More than just not letting sin reign in your mortal body, Paul now moves on to the parts of our body in verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now that word present carries a range of meanings. It can mean to place beside or near. It could be to stand beside, to stand near, to be at hand. Uh, and here the meaning in Romans 3, 13, 6.13 you see it also in Romans 6, 16 and 6, 19. It carries the idea of presenting something for acceptance, sort of like a sacrifice. You know, you're offering something to God to be accepted by God. We see the same word being used in that great memory verse in Romans 12, 1, where Paul exhorts us to holy living after giving us 11 chapters of doctrine in Romans. At the, when he begins chapter 12, he says, I beseech you, therefore... Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, as something that is holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So Paul's command to us after teaching us the glories 
and the riches of the gospel. He says, now present yourselves, present yourselves as a living sacrifice. I always found that interesting because what happens when you present a sacrifice that is dead in the Old Testament? Typically it gets burned up, it's gone, and then the next time you have to present another sacrifice. A living sacrifice is something that could be presented over and over again. That's what our lives are to be. We are presenting ourselves over and over again to God as a living sacrifice. Now next, he says, he has this word, members. Do not present your, so do not offer your members. Just, it's just the word that means like parts of your body, your arms, your, 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 your legs, your eyes, your mouth, your hands, all these things. It's just parts of your body. So do not present, so do not let sin reign in the whole body and do not present the parts of your body as an instrument for sin. So if you remember that little song, be careful little children what you see, be careful little children what you hear, you know. In other words, you got to guard your heart, you got to guard what you see, you got to guard what you hear, you got to guard what you say. All these things are incorporated in this. And then finally is that word instrument which basically speaks of any tool or implement that can be used, but it can also be used for a weapon used in warfare. In fact, there's a, you probably have a footnote there uh, in verse 13 for the word instruments, and you look down, it says, um, or weapons. So the word hat carries, it's like a, a tool or an instrument, or it's a weapon, which is kind of fitting as well, because you don't want your body, you don't want the parts of your body to be a weapon that you allow sin to use against you. So when you put it all together, Paul is exhorting us here not only to not let sin reign in your mortal body, the whole, he's also saying don't even offer up the parts of your body as instruments or as weapons in the hands of the enemy. Weapons of unrighteousness. And moreover, the command carries the weight of not just doing this once or twice in your life, but continually doing it in your life. Keep on not presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. I've said this many times before, but sanctification is a daily struggle. It is something you've got to engage in every day. And also, if you remember last week, what we said about sanctification being a work of God's free grace, the word work there implies process. Paul kind of hints at that in other places in his writings. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the idea of walking in good works, it's a progression. You're not, you don't stand in good works. You don't sit in good works. You don't kind of lay down in good works. You walk in good works. It's movement. It's progression. And then in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he, that is God, who begun a good work in you, will complete it. So the work that he begun is the same work he's going to finish in you. That's very comforting, actually, because if it relied on us, if we, had, if we had to rely on ourselves for our own justification or our own sanctification, we would be lost. But the work that God began in us is the work that he's going to complete in us. Now, as always, in commands 
the commands of Scripture carry both a negative aspect, something to avoid, don't do this, but there's also a positive aspect, do this, something to do. So, for example, when you see the command in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, doesn't just mean don't take things that don't belong to you, but our Heidelberg Catechism and all the catechisms talk about the things that the commands say don't do and then the things that the commands say to do. And in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 42, it, we, the, the command not to steal also implies that we will further our neighbor's good wherever you can. So it's not just don't take something from your neighbor, but it's also, in a sense, work for their good. <laughs> okay? So every command in Scripture contains a do this and a don't do this. And we see this here in Romans 6.13. Don't present your members uh, as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness. And it's, notice here, too, the command is present yourselves, the whole body, and your parts, your members, as instruments of righteousness, both the whole and the parts. So do not let sin reign in your body, but present yourself to God. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present them as instruments of righteousness. And all of this flows from the fact that we are, as Paul says in this verse, being, as being alive from the dead. Again, we are dead to sin. We are alive to God. Now, therefore, act as people who are alive. That's what Paul is saying here. Act as people who are alive. Stop presenting yourselves as and your members as instruments or weapons of the old man. Because that man is dead. That man has died and died in Christ. Now, present yourselves and your members as instruments or weapons for the cause of God. The one who united you with Christ and raised you up from the dead. And here is that third and crucial key to our sanctification. So we need to know that the one who is dead to sin can no longer continue to live in it. We need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And now we need to present our bodies and present our members as instruments or tools in God's hands. And no longer present them to the old man and to the old way of living. Because as Paul says in verse 14, the reason that we should do what Paul says in verses 12 and 13 is here in verse 14. Because, or for, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And that word dominion is derived from the same word that is translated Lord. Okay, in other words, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God because sin is no longer the Lord of your life. Jesus is the Lord of your life. And this goes back to what we've been saying all along about the antinomian, the one who can say, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not yet my Lord. That's not true. (laughs) If Jesus is your Savior, he is your Lord. You, You can't bifurcate Jesus. You can't take part of Jesus. I'll take the Savior part. And I'll do the Lord part a little later. I want to sow my wild oats first. I want to, I want to live my life. I want to I do all kinds of weird things. And then I'll make Jesus Lord of my life. No, the minute he is your Savior, he is your Lord. 
And God, or what Paul's saying here in verse 14 is, sin shall not be the Lord of you anymore. Jesus is your Lord. You have died to sin, have been made alive to God in Christ. Sin has no legal claim to your life. You have died to its dominion. You have died to its power. You have died to its hold on your life. And now through his life, death, and resurrection, Christ has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has broken the power of, and dominion of those things uh, over those who are in union with him. What is true for Christ is true for you by virtue of your union with Christ. So what is true for Christ is also true for you by virtue of your union with Christ. So you can actually say sin is no longer the boss of you. <laughs> You're not the boss of me. <laughs> You're not the Lord of my life. You're not the boss of me. Sin has no dominion over you because you are not under law. You are under grace. Sin exercises its power through the law. We looked at that before, right? Romans 5.20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So in the old man, sin abounds where the law has entered. The law entices, right? We looked at that. The law entices you to sin. The law kind of provokes you to sin. Now, it's not really the law that's doing this, right? I mean, the law, as we'll see in Romans 7, the law is holy, righteous, and good. But it is sin in us working through the law to cause us to break the law. Again, we, we talked about this. You know, a person who's fallen, you know, if you put any kind of rules out there, your first inclination is, why? <laughs> why are you telling me not to do that? You know, why are you telling me not to step on your grass? Why are you telling me to... To drive, I don't. I can't drive fifty-five. That's the old Sammy Hagar song, right? I can't drive fifty-five, <laughs> or in Nebraska, I can't drive seventy-five or whatever the speed limit is. It's not the law that's doing this. It is sin working through the law. That's Romans seven eleven. But we are now no longer under the law. We have died to it. Romans seven verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you have also become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another. To him who was raised from the dead, that we should be, bear fruit to God. We're going to look at that more when we get to Romans 7. But the idea is the law has no hold on us, and as a result, sin no longer has a hold on us. The law can no longer condemn us, and it no longer stands as a barrier to communion with God, for Christ has fully satisfied all of the demands of the law. We saw that in Romans 3, because through Christ we have fulfilled the law. Because Christ fulfilled the law, and by faith we have his righteousness, therefore we have fulfilled the law. The law has no hold over us anymore. We are now under the dominion of grace, the rulership, the lordship of grace. So the implication is clear. Since we are dead indeed to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord, then let us live lives of obedience to God. We have been set free from the tyranny of sin and death. Let us now live like free men and women. That is the point Paul is making here. Well, that ends this passage. Next week, we're going to start looking, Lord willing, at Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23, as Paul is going to describe our transition from slaves to sin to slaves uh, to God. But we'll stop here for now.